I love that song. All right, welcome everyone. We're gonna get into this. This is our, there's part of me that wanted to say this is our last one. I don't know if this is our last one yet, actually. We might do another one next week um, with like outtakes and bonus content, stuff that I literally just had to like cut out for time from all three of these other ones. But we're going to talk about like the, I guess the final part of the wisdom journey that we've been talking about. And the wisdom journey is summed up in the, the three books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and now Job. Job is what we're going to look at today. Job is a beautiful book. I just want to say right off the bat, there is a chance, um, if you, if you, for any of the scholars in the room, uh, if, if you're familiar at all with like textual criticism of the Bible, people try to figure out like when was it written, who wrote what, and all of that sort of stuff. There's some debate. There's lots of debate about the book of Job. And so I just want you guys to know that this is, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with this, and I'm totally okay with this. Job, was Job uh, an actual guy written by someone recounting the life of Job and was given divine insight into this conversation between God and, and Satan? Like, maybe. It might be completely 100% factual and it actually took place. Or is it an inspired story that is meant to teach us about the person of God? That may also be true. Neither which bothers me in the slightest. And so, if it bothers you, come and talk to me. Well, I'm happy to have that conversation with you. But we're going to talk about Job. And this is an interesting book because there are some things that are very down-to-earth and practical, like conversations that people had uh, between, between men. And it also is very divine and celestial, like there's conversations in the heavenly realms. And so somehow... This was put into a written form to teach us. Now, we talked about Proverbs. Proverbs is the beginning of the wisdom journey because Proverbs is guidance. It's basics. It's the basics of wisdom. Do this. Don't do this. If you do this, it will go well with you. If you do this, things will go poorly for you. And it's, and it's right. It's not always 100% applicable. Do you remember that? But it's, it's all true and it's all helpful for us. Then Ecclesiastes was all about chaos. So guidance and then chaos. That was all about Hevel. If you missed last week's lesson, go back and learn about Hevel. And how it's like soaked into every fiber of our life as a human being. We can't escape the Hevel of life. And then today we're going to talk about perspective. Perspective is the goal of wisdom. And hopefully that makes sense by the end of this. Uh, there are things that perspective gives you that guidance in and of itself can't give you. And so any of us who have helped a teenager learn how to drive a car, we've seen this. Because we who have been driving for 20, 30 years, we know how to read the road and traffic patterns a little bit better than the, the 15-year-old we're like white-knuckling it next to. And they're doing a great job. Everett's learning, Josh is learning, Emma's driving. Like, the, the young ones are great drivers, but they 
don't have quite the perspective of us 20, 30, 40, 50-plus-year-olds. Does that make sense? Would you agree that you have a, a certain perspective? You see something, and you immediately like read the situation differently than if you're just responding to the brake lights in front of you. And that's what, that's what perspective gives you. There's no amount of rules and guidance and like easy nuggets of, of, of basic wisdom that will give you the same depth of insight that just experience and perspective will give you. And we're going to look at that. So I have, we're actually going to, this is a, a sermonion. We're going to uh, wrap it up and talk about Jesus at the end. But I got three points for us. And the first one is the story. The story of Job is actually pretty simple. And we looked at this in part, the, the intro, part one. And it's the first two chapters of Job. And it starts with this guy, Job, and he's, he's a really great guy, and bad things happen to him. And there's a conversation in the spiritual realm between God and the Satan. And that's another conversation we can have later. But Satan and God talk about Job. And God says, yeah, you can kind of, you can kind of like have your way with him for a, in, a, in a manner of speaking. Like you can make his life hard and I think he'll still be faithful to me. And so the way I describe this at the beginning is that he's a man who lived Proverbs, but he got Ecclesiastes. He was pure, he was righteous, he was blameless. This is what it says about him. In 1.1, a man whose name was Job, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Great guy. He, he lived life the way God wanted him to live life. Here's a list of what then went down. Immediately he learns about, and this is just the first two chapters. It's all right there. He learns about his employees were killed. All his, his um, assets as a, as a farmer, they were all swept away, taken away, lost everything financially. He's now broke. And then, before he even got over that news, he learns that his children died. And uh, all of them at once. They were in like a banquet hall and the thing collapsed on them. And then, he is struck with disease. And Satan actually tells God, like, yeah, he's faithful now, but you won't let me touch him in his health, in his body. Like, you let me do that, and he will curse you. God's like, okay, do it. And he does, and God, and Job still stays blameless. But then the last thing, which is kind of weird and obscure, is he has this weird interaction with his wife. And his wife basically, like, you know, starts asking him to curse God and die. And so I can't imagine, I can't imagine going through all these things and feeling like, uh, like God still loves me. And you have maybe experienced some of these, or one of these, or maybe even a couple of these. You have felt something like this, even though you may have also felt that you were blameless and upright and feared God and shunned evil. Like, I did everything right, but why am I getting everything bad in life? And this is how the story starts. This is a big book, and and what we think of as Job is really just the first two chapters. It's this. He's a good guy, and bad stuff happens to him. But it needs us 
to, rec- to reconcile what we talked about last week. Hevel, chaos, all the bad stuff in life. We can think that if we're good people, we should avoid all hurt. We think that if, if I just do my best at living the way God wants me to live, I, I am ineligible from hevel and chaos and pain. I should, I should get a free pass. I should get like get out of jail free card if I live according to the scriptures. I love in Romans where it talks about the wages of sin is death. I think we all know that. But the, the wisdom literature, especially Ecclesiastes, teaches us that the wages of life is hevel. It's going to be there. And if you're alive on this planet, you're going to just have to learn to see it when it's happening to you. Learn to accept it. We have to accept Hevel and keep moving forward on this wisdom journey. If we don't, if we think this way, well, I'm a good guy, so I shouldn't have anything, nothing bad should ever happen to me. It's a trap. And some of us may can think back on times where we've fallen into that trap of this thinking. I deserve to be treated better than this God. And we forget, we don't deserve anything. What do we deserve? We deserve wrath and punishment and separation from God as sinners. That's what we deserve. And so whenever we start talking about like like stomping our feet and asking for what's fair, here's what's fair. We drop dead right now. (laughs) We spend eternity apart from God. That's fair because that's what our sin has earned us. And yet we think we have a different definition of fairness based on our good life. And so Part one of Job is just him getting the bad end of every life interaction. And then, and this is where I want to kind of spend some more time. Then we get into the dialogue. Now chapters one and two are the story of Job. God, Satan, Job, and all the bad stuff that happens to him. At the end... We're going to look at chapters 38 through 42. That's where God comes in and teaches them some stuff. But that leaves 34 chapters of the Bible that are literally just back and forth talking. If they made a movie about this, it would be horribly boring. Because it's just talking for 85% of the movie, back and forth, sitting in a circle talking. 34 chapters of Job and his friends. Now his friends come, they sit, they sit shiva with him, which is just sit in silence and don't say anything until he says something. Chapter uh, 3 starts Job talking. And then once he talks, that kind of gives them permission to talk, and boy, do they talk. For what seems like days, they just sit around and talk about God and, and life and Job, and they're not great counselors. They're not great social workers. They're not great therapists at all. But this begs the question, why is this in here? Why is there 34 chapters of just babbling? And you might be like, it's the word of God. It's actually, I need us to be mature here, it's actually not the word of God. And you might be like, what? It's the Bible. It is. But God later actually says, you guys said things about me that were not true. At the end of Job, we're going to read that later, 
God is angry because he says, you guys talked a lot of nonsense. But then that begs the question, why do we have to have 34 chapters of nonsense in the Bible? Well, I've got, I've got a, an analogy for us. It's not a perfect analogy. There never is a perfect analogy. But it's an okay analogy, okay? We're going we're gonna to take the wisdom journey right here in regards to, like, father-son. I got boys, but it can be father-daughter. But parent to children, imagine when your child is young and you're trying to teach them how to see the world, navigate the world, you usually tell them, very Proverbs-like, hey, this is true and this is not true. Does that make sense? You instruct. You tell your kids, hey, this is what is true about me and you and God and the world, and this is, I want you to look at the world through this lens. We give our kids the lens to look through which to look at the world. And it's, this is what is true and this is what is not true. Later, as your kids are growing up, and I have this picture of just a, a father and son working on the car together, my dad was really good at this. He would challenge my thinking. He would give me like, like, puzzles or, or riddles or like paradoxes to try to figure out. Like I would, we'd have a talk and I remember one very clearly, it was about, um, there was a, a thing at school where someone asked me to cut in front of them because they had to go to a doctor's appointment. This is at, in the lunch line. And I had to, he, he asked me if I could cut. And I came back to my dad and he's like, and I was like, Dad, I, I didn't let this kid cut in front of me because that's against the rules. And he's like, but he had a doctor's appointment. Why didn't you, why didn't you let, why didn't you have, like, think about what he had on? Why didn't you let him cut? And I'm thinking, because that's wrong. But he's challenging, he's pushing me. He's like, why didn't you let him cut? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, because it's, it's against the rules? He's like, is there any situation where you could have let him cut and not break the rules? And I'm like, I don't know. But he's, he's challenging me. And it's just over a conversation. I think we were driving at the time. But he's challenging me. And he's, he's testing my thinking. And I remember, I'll never forget. Now, it might, to some of you, it might seem like obvious. But as a middle schooler, it, was, it eluded me. But he was like, he's like, if he was your friend and he was in need... But it's against the rules. Why didn't you go to the back of the line and let him take your spot? And I was like, I don't know. I didn't think of that. I just said no. <laughs> but as a dad, the next level, he taught me what was right and wrong. But then he, he had to challenge me a little. And he had to push against my thinking and test me. And I, and I benefited from it. The next level, though, is very interesting. And that is, and I just have a, a, a picture of a father and son sitting on a couch together. I watch the news. I love watching the news. I watch the news every day. Um, I don't watch a lot of television, but I like to watch the, the headlines and stuff. And the boys will, will sit on the couch with me and we'll watch the news in the morning or in the evening. And, and the news is a very interesting opportunity where they get to hear someone else's interpretation of the world. And they get this at school, and they get this in, in their friends, but it gives them an opportunity to hear something that might be true or it might be wrong. And there have been times where I know Freddie has been like, he'll see something on the news and he'll be like, is that true? 
And my answer is, I don't know, what do you think? And now we're having a dialogue about someone else's perspective of the world. Now, I don't do that with three- and four-year-olds. But as our children grow up, it's important to be able to have a dialogue and ask them, hey, what do you think about this thing that we're reading or seeing or looking at? And guys, this is what I see is beautiful about Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Is that in Proverbs, it's just direction. This is what's true. This is what's not true. There's not a lot of debate in the book of Proverbs. But in Ecclesiastes, we are pushed. Do you really believe that stuff? Here's some things that are, that are harder to, to accept. And then Job, this is what is so interesting about Job. In Job, we get 34 chapters of just people going back and forth. And I imagine like being a young, like an ancient Jewish parent reading this book or at synagogue discussing it and then being like, what do you think about this? Is this true or is this not true? Because we know that there are some things that are not true that the friends say. And so when we read the book of Job, we read the dialogue and we have to, we have to be mature enough to ask ourselves, like, this is what Bildad said, but Bildad might have said something that was wrong. But man, it sounds convincing. And that sounds like what I think sometimes. The dialogue of Job is an opportunity to have dialogue of our own. You can do this when you watch the news. You can do this discussing current events. You can do so many opportunities to ask these questions. And here's two questions that we need to wrestle with. Is this who God is? And is this how God works? And we have to wrestle through that all the way through Job. We're going to get someone's perspective. It might be Bildad. It might be Eliphaz. It might be Zophar. It might be, might be Job. And we have to ask ourselves, is this the way they're describing God? Is that who God is? And is that the way God works? And the answer might be no. Let's give you some examples. This is one of the first conversations they have. Eliphaz says, but if I were you, so he's got his friend, now he's going he's gonna to disciple his friend who just lost everything, including his family. If I were you, Job, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. I'm sure Job is like, oh yeah, I never thought of that, genius. This is the, this is the ancient Jewish way of saying, you should pray about it. And Job said, oh, now you too have proved to be of absolutely no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. And it just goes on and on like this. Here's another one. Bildad, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. This is the ancient Jewish way of saying, you need to repent. He's saying, it's because you're in sin. You just need to like... Get back to being godly and God will lift you up again and restore you the way you were. And Job said, I am blameless. I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And what's funny about this is that Bildad is basically quoting Proverbs, essentially. 
saying live right and you'll get right. But Job is quoting Ecclesiastes. The blameless and the wicked get the same thing in life. I did what was right, but I still got all the chaos. And I want to read this one. This is Zophar. It says, Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water's gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday, and darkness will become like morning. Again, he's saying the same thing. You just have to like go back to the basics, figure stuff out, repent, put away with evil deeds, and life will go well with you. This is what Job, this is what Job said in response to this. What you know, I also know. I know know the basics of wisdom. I get it. I am not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Have you ever felt like saying something like that to someone who is giving you really bad advice? Like, you know the smartest thing you could do right now is just be like, shh. And Job says something very interesting here. He says, talking to you guys is absolutely useless. You know who I need to talk to. I need to talk to God. I need to to yell at God right now. And we're going to get to that. But this is where Job ends up, not ends up, but this is one of the things Job says. He says, all was well with me. Life was good. But he, God, shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. He's saying, God is mean to me. This is personal. God hates me for some reason. I was fine. And I tried to live life well and right. But God God crushed me. He took me by the neck and crushed me. And maybe you have felt something like this. Where it's like it's almost personal. I know, I'm going to be completely honest, there were times when Jen and I were really struggling financially. Things were just crashing around us. And we're like, what's next, God? Like, how mean are you going to be to me? And it affected our faith. Now, I want to get back to the book of Job. We read these things, and if we read them with an immature view, and we read this like it was Proverbs, we don't know how to deal with this. Is this true? Is this the way God treats people? You want to say no, but it doesn't say anywhere when they say some, when they walk outside the lines. Like, hey, Bildad, this is good, this is good now. Don't pay no attention to this because this is bad. It's, it, was the, it was the Jewish reader's job, and it's our job to wrestle with it. And to even think like, man, I think like that sometimes. When I think like that, am I wrong or am I right? So here's my question. Am I I testing and challenging my thinking? How do Christians form good mental habits to make sure that their thinking doesn't just like petrify into dogma? Well, here's, here's what I do. One, 
it's, this is why you got to read your Bible. You should talk to other strong spiritual people who rely on the Holy Spirit. You should not just talk to Christians. You should have non-Christian friends. And then, I, like I said before, I watch the news. I, like I, it keeps my heart soft when I know of names of people that live in Grand Rapids that have experienced tragedy in the last 12 hours. When I wake up and I hear about a house that burned down or someone who was shot or there's, you're not going to run out of, of Hevel and it keeps our hearts soft. I don't know if this is a, a poem or a micro essay or something, but I like to write a lot and so this is something I, I wrote a while back. I remember reading this to Steve at lunch one day. But it's, it's just called, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. We have defined faith as being unmovable in our beliefs. But we missed all the traps that lie in wait there. We stopped listening. We stopped learning. And we marry faith to pride. And then we watch as all of Christendom calcifies rusts, atrophies. Maybe a better definition is that faith is unshakably living under the lordship of God through many waves of discovery. Even when we discover we were wrong on something. May we never rest our understanding on God, of God on the strength of our understanding. What do I mean by that? May we never rest our understanding of God. This is who God is. And we, we put that so, so firmly that it only depends, like God's identity only depends on our ability to understand him. God is so much bigger than you could ever imagine. You think you know who God is? You don't. And we're never going to fully understand perfectly until we get to like crawl up in his lap on the throne. And this goes back to what Paul was saying, like, man, the Old Testament was like the shadow of what is to come. And now it's like this mirror, fuzzy mirror reflection. But then when we see him face to face, then we'll really know what it's like. And so that leads us to this. Remember Job said, hey, I want to talk to God. Well, God comes and talks to Job. So just when they're all of their debate and all of their discussion, they think that, they, they think that maybe they've figured out, we got to figure it out. This is what Job should do. This is who God is. This is how God works. This is how you get back in God's good graces. Job's like, you guys are horrible. I just want to talk to God. And God's like, all right, you ready? Because we're about to talk. And I used this. It's one of my favorite little scriptures in the Bible. God's like, hey, Job. I hope you're ready for what is coming your way. Man up, because this is not going to be fun for you. And so what I've done is I've taken all of those chapters of, the, of where God talks to, to Job. I would encourage you to read it, but I'm just going to read, uh, I'm going to read something to you where I have like summarized all of that. Okay. And so 
everything that God says, I just kind of boiled down into like a statement or a question. And I just want to go through all of it. So this is like four chapters condensed into one little thing. I'll just put that up there. God says this. He's like, get ready. Hey, where were you when I made the earth? How did I make the oceans and the continents? Have you ever planned a planet's rotation to provide day and night? Have you ever hung out at the bottom of the ocean? Do you know the physics behind the phenomenon we call light and dark? Surely you know these things. You're so old and wise. Where do I keep the rain, the snow, the hail? From where do I distribute all the wind and lightning? Who is caring for all the plants that you'll never see or know they even exist? From where does dew and ice magically appear? Can you move the constellations across the sky? You see them moving, but do you know why they move? Do you know the astronomical laws that govern space? Can you summon clouds and make them rain? Can you summon lightning and send it out? Do you let animals know when a flood is coming or what time it is? I do. Do you know how many clouds there are on the planet right now? I do. Do you help feed all the animals of the earth from the lion to the raven? I do. How many animals have you seen give birth? Do you know the gestation of every species alive? How familiar are you with the history and lives of the donkeys, the ox, the ostrich? Do you give the horse its strength? Do you give the hawk its wisdom? Does the eagle obey you? Do you think that you can talk to me the way you've been talking to me? And Job says, I'm really sorry, God. And God says, we're not done yet. Shut up and keep listening. Is my justice meaningless to you? Are you right and I'm wrong? Do you have an arm like mine? Do you have a voice like mine? Can you do for yourself what you expect me to do for you? Go for it. Exalt yourself the way you think I should exalt you. Destroy your enemies the way you think I should destroy them. If you do that, I'll admit you're awesome. Look at these creatures, behemoth and leviathan. Every tribe and religion across Mesopotamia thinks they embody destruction, but I created them. Everyone thinks they sow chaos, but look how ordered and engineered they are. The scariest beasts in the world are still just my created things, and that includes you too. And that's the end of God's, like, smackdown of Job. It's about four chapters long. I would encourage you to read it. It's amazing. But he takes them on this, this, like, cosmic journey around the universe. And at the bottom of the ocean and every animal, and he gives them a glimpse into, like, there's so much you do not know. You're not strong. You're not smart. And Job ends with this. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. 
things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you. You shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this is the end of Job. Almost. we got one more little thing. But this is the end of the Job story. And this is the destination of the wisdom journey. Because mature wisdom is found in someone who has experienced life and experienced God and all the good and bad and has drawn closer to him. My, eye, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And even like the kids, teens, campus, even some of us young, um, younger folk, we, we grow up in church and we have that level of knowledge of God. My ears had heard of you. I grew up listening to stories. I grew up coming to church. My ears had heard of God. But it's not until we go through life all the drama, all the bad stuff, the highlights, the lows. We don't, it's hard for our eyes to see him when it's just theoretical. And what happens when we experience God, when we see God, what's right there is humility. I despise myself. I think the, the more I know who God is, the smaller and more ridiculous my, my picture of myself is. If you think you're super awesome, you probably have a skewed picture of your relationship with God. Now, does God think you're awesome? Yeah, he does. But if we want to be mature, if we want to be wise, we have to be ready to accept humility. Here's the way I'm going to word that. If your wisdom isn't humble, it's not wise. We think that there's... Remember I showed you the the Dunning-Kruger effect? (laughs) That we get a little bit of experience and we think we're amazing at something? And then we learn, oh, I'm still dumb. I don't know anything. I should, be, I should be really humble. And then as we develop expertise and true mature wisdom, it's, we never get as prideful as we were when we were dumb. And we had our men's midweek uh, on Wednesday. We talked about humility. Guys, if you know me, if you've talked to me at all since we've been here, humility is the thing that I feel like we have to keep talking about all the time. It's the key ingredient to the life God has planned for us. And it's, it's the heart of Jesus. Philippians 2, read it. We are so prideful that as soon as we like barely turn a blind eye to the constant struggle of being humble, as soon as we like even take a break from humility, pride is right there. It convinces us, oh, we're so cool. We're so smart. We're so, we got it all figured out. I can think of times in my life where pride has been like, you don't need anybody. You got this, forget them. 
You don't need him. You don't need her. You don't need them. You don't need church. You don't need the Bible. You don't need anything except your vast knowledge and your skills and your wit and your cleverness. Ben, you're so great. And all I can say is that whenever, just me personally, when I stay on that road for any length of time, my life gets way worse. I want to read James 3, 13 through 17. I want to read the New Living Translation. Just sit back and soak this up. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it. Prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every kind of evil, and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism, and is always sincere. That's how James describes real, mature, godly wisdom. But does our life look like that? Or does our life look like, I'm smart, I've been around, I know, I got this, I can do this. So I I just am begging us, don't turn a blind eye to pride. We have to constantly be working on humility. All right, we're going to take communion now. And this is, I want to show you the end of Job. This point, this communion point is called the suffering intercessor. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe this is brand new to you. But that whole beginning story of Job, you just want to know like, well, God, why why did this happen to Job? It's not in there. Throughout the whole dialogue, Throughout the whole blabbering between friends about who God is and how God works, never do they get to the heart of why these things happened to Job. And then God comes down and says, hey, you're not as cool as you think you are. You're not as powerful as you think you are. And he never tells them why any of this happened. And so there's an epilogue to Job. And you would expect, like if this were a Greek tragedy or something, this would be where it all comes out. Why did this happen to Job? The chorus would come in and sing a song of like, you know, the Greek singers would be like, finally we reached the end of Job and here's here's why it all went down so you can make sense of it. Guess what? It never tells you. It is not a question that is ever answered in the book of Job. But... It does say this, which is very strange. So right when you'd expect to get the summary, the moral of the story, the book of Job completely ignores that question, and it says this. It offers another story. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends 
because you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And that's the end of the book of Job. That's it. It ends with this little story. After everything, God is like, hey, I'm coming back to you guys. You said a lot of really dumb things, and I'm mad at you. And my wrath is now going to be placed on you unless you can Unless you can figure out how to escape my wrath, you need someone else. You can't, you can't do it. But you know who can do it is Job. Now, Job's experiences that we have read about over this whole, whole book, Job's experiences, including his suffering, uniquely positioned him to be the only one capable of saving his friends. Now, is this why he suffered? We'll never know. Again, that, an- that question is never answered. But we do know that Job, it says Job spoke truth. We know he didn't speak 100% truth. Job said some things that were not true also. So it wasn't just the fact that Job was right and they were wrong. But something happened. The truth alone isn't what made Job special, but Job's experiences were significant in his relationship with God so that God told his friends, go to Job or deal with my wrath. And you may understand where I'm going with this. The the truth is that we have an intercessor. We are Job's friends. We say dumb stuff all throughout the course of our life. We think we know who God is. We think we understand how God works. We think we're so prideful. And God's like, you can't figure me out. And you can't save yourself. We are the ones that act like we know everything and incur God's wrath. Jesus is the one who suffered for our stupidity. Jesus was the only one who could stand between us and punishment. Job is a beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus. A righteous man who suffered unjustly and because of it was able to save others. And I want to read, before we take communion, I just want to read Isaiah 53. This is one of the prophecies of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus is our suffering intercessor. Lived righteously, got a, got a, a life he didn't deserve, but he was uniquely positioned to save us in a way that we couldn't save ourselves. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion. God, um, we don't deserve, we don't deserve you. We don't deserve a relationship with you, God. We don't deserve Jesus or his sacrifice on the cross. I pray, God, that we can draw near to Jesus. I pray that we can draw near to you and we can find the humility that comes in a mature wisdom, God. A humility that says, uh, I deserve punishment. And yet, you laid that on your precious son who did not deserve that. I pray that his sacrifice motivates us and that we will be driven to, to move forward in life constantly striving to be humble, constantly fighting against the pride in our own hearts and trying to continue on this wisdom journey of life and that we will find ourselves uh, closer to you. We love you so much and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.